Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Montana and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today we'll hear about sheepdog trials in Carbondale. They know what to do. It's just building the communication system between the two of you and developing them and correcting the bad little bits, trimming them off and saying, no, no, doggy, don't do that. The sounds of Moab. This is my chicken Mabel. A community in southwest Colorado at a crossroads when it comes to solar power. I am for solar, especially if individual homes and barns and as far as giant complexes in a neighborhood uh, where they're cutting down trees, ruining the habitat, ruining our water. And a Utah doctor is recognized for her work in indigenous maternal health. There's something about the experience of being black or brown in America that creates that inequity and we have a responsibility to identify that, deconstruct it and create an opportunity for health justice, for birthing justice. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Earlier this month, Carbondale played host to the 2023 National Sheepdog Final at the Strang Ranch in Missouri Heights. The event featured the best herding dogs, all of them Border Collies, from around North America, working with their handlers to herd stubborn Colorado sheep. Aspen Public Radio's Carolyn Yanis was there. On a crisp fall morning at the Strang Ranch in Carbondale, some of the finest athletes in North America are competing to show they have what it takes to overcome the toughest challenges their sport has to offer. The challenge? Ornery range sheep from Colorado's high country and miles of field to run them on. The athletes, as you might have guessed, aren't people. They're border collies, bred for generations to herd livestock, mostly sheep and cattle. Their handlers use a series of whistled and verbal commands to tell the dogs where to go and what to do. But a lot of the sport starts with instinct, and the Border Collie's innate desire to work the sheep is on full display here. They know what to do. It's just building the communication system between the two of you and developing them and correcting the bad little bits, trimming them off and saying, no, no, doggy, don't do that. But yeah, just go ahead and do what you naturally want to do and um, we'll put the commands on it. That's Ellen Skillings from California. She's been in this sport, also called dog trialing, and working with animals for nearly 40 years. Skillings says the dogs competing at String Ranch this weekend are the best of the best and represent a bond between the handler and the dog that can only be built with dedication and hard work. And this is a big course with pretty tough sheep, and so the dogs really has to have a lot of stamina to get through it. It requires quite a lot of dog. The course and tasks are meant to be transferable to actual farm and ranch work with livestock. 
For example, a good stock dog will need to be able to herd sheep over long distances, especially in the West, where ranges stretch miles and predators, such as wolves and coyotes, are abundant. Or if someone comes by the ranch to purchase a sheep, or a sheep is sick and needs doctoring, a dog needs to be able to help its handler separate it off from the rest of the herd. And of course, a dog needs to be able to help get the sheep into a pen. These abilities are all tested throughout the trial course here at the Strang Ranch. Among the competitors here is Bridget Strang, whose family owns and runs the ranch, and her dog, Bill. The pair have competed in trials all over the country, but Bill's main job is helping out on the ranch. That's kind of how I train them. I give them, I teach them a few tools, and then I go out and I do a job. And um, through, the, through that series of chores and tasks is kind of how I train my dog. I think other people probably have, a more, have more method. <laughs> you might think that Bill would have a home field advantage, but he's only three years old and hasn't worked with these specific sheep before. For Strang, hosting the national finals is a special experience. You know, I've, I've lived for the dog trialing. I would still have dogs and sheep and do the work if I didn't dog trial. But with every job I do, I sort of have my eye on the ball for how that might help me in the trial field. In the semifinals, Strang and Bill were able to corral all of their sheep into the pen, but had some missteps. I mishandled it. I misread that panel, so I missed that panel. And then I made a mistake in the shedding ring. In the end, their score didn't qualify the duo for the finals on Sunday, though Strang felt satisfied with the results. He's good. He's young. He's got a future in front of him. First, it's his first national finals. First year in open. The weekend's winners were Scott Glenn and four-year-old Pip from Alberta, Canada. The pair's final score was far and away the best of the competition. Even for a seasoned winner like Glenn, it's still breathtaking to watch the dogs work. It always stuck with me how neat it was the dog knew left and right. That always impressed me because we had cattle dogs, but I mean, it was sycamore come back, sycamore come back, hopefully. But just the great distance of them of them going, I think, is awesome. Glenn brought home tens of thousands of dollars from the prize purse, but the reward for Pip, Bill, and all the other dogs who had been sprinting for miles was to cool down by taking a plunge in big buckets of water. That's it for the national finals for this year, but a lot of these handlers and dogs will be back in Colorado next September for the Meeker Classic, a trial that will qualify dogs and handlers for the 2024 final. There will also be plenty of newcomers, like Ellen Skilling's pup Freyer, who's not yet one year old. And for all of Skilling's experience, she can't say what next season will bring. It's never the same. You're never done training and thinking about it. The more you do, the more questions you ask. You can never 100% predict what's going to happen. Every time you go out there, it's new. For Aspen Public Radio News, I'm Caroline Yanez. That story was produced with assistance from the Public Media Journalists Association Editor Corps that's supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Have you ever thought about the sounds that best describe your community? Well, that was a question posed to some community members in Moab recently who took part in a workshop facilitated by KZMU's Emily Arnston. 
Today we're bringing you an audio postcard from a recent collaboration between KZMU and Moab Arts. During this year's Red Rocks Arts Festival, Moab Arts offered a podcasting workshop, led by me, for members of the public to learn how to tell stories with sound. I asked everyone to record sounds that remind them of Moab and home, and then describe why those sounds are meaningful to them. Here's what they came up with. Each field sound is followed up by a description from the person who made the recording. Hope you enjoy. The chirping of the birds wakes me up in the morning with their beautiful melodies and greets my day with joy. When the crickets start their evening dance, it prepares me for the night, slows me down. So my challenge is to not step on cracks. It's really hard. I chose the sounds of my daughter playing. Uh, it reminds me of Moab because there are families being raised um, and children are powerful symbols of a place, of a point in time. Children speak to everyone as symbols of wonder, of their own inner child, of the future. Where that crack is, will open up and I bounce, bounce down and then bounce back up and then I keep going. What do you have to say? This is my chicken Mabel. Uh, so I have two chickens, Mabel and Meredith, that live in my backyard. I raised them this spring for six weeks in my kitchen in a bin to the dismay of my roommates. I'm really proud that I've kept them alive for this long with predators and now they're full-fledged chickens. My sound was the razor. To some it is fun, to some it's noise pollution. The obnoxious noise destroys the wilderness experience. Low vent. The swamp cooler. Such a funny phrase for someone who grew up in the Everglades. It is a simple sound, a drone ever present in my Moab life for months at a time. High vent. Masking some of the noise from downtown out my window. Interested in harvesting Me. some eggplant. Working with Moab's youth at the community garden has been a delightfully curious experience. The experience one has in nature should cultivate a meaningful relationship. And then what do you say after? Oh yeah. Can I please pick some of your eggplant? Thank you. Last night I slept in a canyon. This is the sound of me hiking back this morning. It's amazing that so much of this beautiful land is accessible to all, regardless of what you do or where you're from. And that was an audio postcard from a workshop at the Red Rocks Arts Festival. Thanks to everyone who participated in this workshop. Lisa Fullman, Gabe Wojtek, Laura Harris, Terry Underwood, Ryan Zorb, Ginger Cyan, and Holly Lammert. Thanks to Emily Arnstem of KZMU for those sounds of Moab. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The state of Colorado has ambitious goals for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and many of its municipalities have their own similarly ambitious green energy plans in place. But implementing those goals comes with its own challenges, as one community in southwest Colorado is finding out. KOTO's Gavin McGough has more. 
driver is traveling west on Highway 145 into Norwood are greeted just to the edge of town with a homespun billboard hanging on a fence. It pictures a goat and huge block text reading, Wrong Mesa Solar. The billboard has stood there all summer and is a response to the Wrights Mesa Solar Project, a 600-acre solar development proposed by One Energy Renewables on Lone Cone Road just outside town. When the project was introduced at a public meeting in mid-May, community members turned out in droves to voice their opposition to the project. The level of concern was so intense that San Miguel County issued a six-month moratorium on all new commercial-scale utility applications in order to update its land use code. That was back in late May, recalls County Planning Director Kay Simonson. Yeah, we put the moratorium into place. We're not going to be done in time for that moratorium, but it can be extended. It'll be up to the Board of County Commissioners, obviously, to adopt that. But we do expect that we will be extending it because we won't have it ready in time. I spoke with Simonson at a county open house held this week in the Lone Cone Library in Norwood to gather public input on possible land use code edits. The turnout for the drop-in event was high, and Phil Simonson. Uh, People have some very, they're very passionate about it, and they have a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts, and uh, we're trying to get them all put together. The land use code updates are countywide, stretching east to west end, and they're not only focused on solar, but also other utility development, mining, logging, natural resources, and so forth. But conversation centers around the Wrights' solar development. Charmaine Toomey remains shocked by the plan brought forth by One Energy Renewables. I am for solar, especially if individual homes and barns and as far as giant complexes in a neighborhood uh, where they're cutting down trees, ruining the habitat, ruining our water, it's just not right to put a complex, an industrial complex, in a neighborhood. The land use code currently has no specific regulations around commercial-scale solar development. Terry Lammers, whose family ranch is located on Lone Cone Road, says the county must prepare. Federal and state renewable energy goals will make large-scale solar projects a common occurrence. What Norwood saw this spring, says Lammers. Yeah, I think we're just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg. Wendy Brooks is a resident of Telluride, but has family land in Norwood. Brooks opposes the Wrights Mesa Solar Project and feels the issue has a specific East County-West County divide. I think a lot of people in Norwood are just suspicious that somehow it's going to happen to them because... The county powers are all in Telluride. Brooks draws my attention to a map of San Miguel County hanging on the wall. It invites participants to put a sticker where they think solar development should go. The most common place listed is the valley floor of Telluride. I mean, there are like 27 people out of 40 who all think it should be on the valley floor. For Brooks, all those stickers on the valley floor which is a conserved piece of land and barred from solar development, points to a feeling amongst Norwood residents of a double standard, where Telluride's open spaces are considered precious and unassailable, while land on Norwood's Mesa is regarded as common and disposable. 
But for others, such as Ofer resident Kim Wheels, the whole conversation was a disturbing illustration of how difficult the green energy transition will be. We have climate action plans, a regional climate action plan, a Tyrite climate action plan, a Mountain Village climate action plan, Norwood is part of this, Ofer is part of this, all of our regions are, and yet putting feet to the ground and what it actually looks like to implement it is a complete flip and challenging. The county has pledged a 90% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions over 2010 levels by 2050. But as Wheels points out, how those goals will be implemented and where the infrastructure will go remains an enormous question, especially as the county is looking to renew the moratorium for another six months. For KOTO, this is Gavin McGough. Alaska Native and Native American women's health statistics often go underreported due to a lack of research and focus for this demographic. Utah-based physician Dr. Michelle Dubink has sought more representation and research for Indigenous maternal health. Her work has been nationally recognised with her recent appointment as a fellow with the National Academy of Medicine. She spoke with KRCL's Valine MC. Dr. Dubink, it's so good to have you back with us. Thank you so much, Valine. I'm really excited to be here. And having you back here, actually, we're, we're celebrating Dr. DeBink right now, folks. And so Dr. DeBink was recently approved for the Norman F. Gant American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology Fellowship. Dr. DeBink, this sounds amazing. So I do have to say and disclose that I know Dr. DeBink through one of her previous research projects and a study group that she had. And so I know she's doing amazing work and I'm so excited to hear about this fellowship. Dr. DeBink, Tell us, tell us, what are you doing now? What's what's going on? Tell us about this fellowship. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really honored to be back with you and, and so honored actually to be here for this kind of celebratory interview. Um, you know, um, the Norman F. Gantt and ABOG Fellowship is with the National Academy of Medicine, and it is an opportunity to really work with some of the finest minds in academic medicine to try to translate research into health policy actions that can actually improve people's lives. And, um, you know, as you know, Valine, we are um, doing a lot of work with Native and Indigenous communities, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities, and other birthing folks from marginalized groups to try to bring their stories to light, to amplify their voices, and to identify the things that they um, know will be helpful to them to have uh, safer births and and better experiences through their prenatal and postpartum care. And I feel very humbled and grateful that the National Academy of Medicine and ABOG really felt like that work was something to be highlighted and something to um, elevate to the level of, of making communication or making connections um, and communicating throughout the National Academy. And so I'm I'm excited to get to work in those networks and I'm excited to amplify the voices that we have heard in our groups even further um, through those the National Academy's groups. 
So in looking at your academic career, Dr. DeBink, I'm seeing this and it looks like, so not only did you go to medical school and specifically focused in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan, but then you also went further than that and you received your PhD in health services organization and policy as well from the University of Michigan. But it just seems you're so focused already that it's not just about providing care and being a provider in the medical sense, but it's also about seeing where changes need to happen. And it seems like you kind of knew this early on. Can you fill us in a little bit about that? That is a great question. Um, And one I haven't really talked about probably since I applied to medical school. Um, But it, it definitely was something that, you know, by the time I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to go to medical school. I'm the first doctor in my family. Um, and so, um, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of direction or anything like that in terms of like, quote unquote, how to be a doctor. Um, and so I kind of did my own thing when I got to undergrad and I decided that, you know, if I was going to be a doctor, I had all the time in the world to learn biology and chemistry and all those things that was going to be a lifelong, lifelong learning. And it had always been a passion. So I felt like that would not be a challenge to make myself continue in that, in that. And so as an undergraduate, I actually majored in sociology and policy studies because I felt like understanding the system in which you work um, and the ways in which the system can both the system and society and policy and and all of these things can either you know help amplify people's health and their resilience or could um put barriers in the way of them achieving their full health and their full um wellness you know kind of in a holistic sense and it was that sort of education in sociology, medical sociology, health policy. And then I spent a year working in a policy think tank in Houston, um, which was essentially looking at, um, it was called the uh, Texas Program for Society and Health. And the um, idea of it was to identify non-health policies that we thought would have long-term impacts on health and holistic wellness. Um, And that really drove me into the direction of both MD and PhD as a way of continuing that bridge between individuals um, who are seeking health care advice and um, support within kind of that clinical care moment, and then bridging that to how do we structure the system so that all people have an opportunity to achieve, you know, what they want and need from with regard to their health and wellness. And so um, that drove me down that that kind of bridging pathway. We have Dr. Michelle DeBink. Dr. DeBink was recently selected as the Norman F. Gant American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology Fellow. I have to go back even further because I really like to know the whys of people. And um, you're telling me this and I'm hearing this like um, in your academic career. But where is this awareness that you even know to start focusing on this as an undergrad? There has to be some origin story there. I think it, I think it goes back to family. Um, my family is heavily invested in teaching us when we were young, my sisters and I, to care for one another and to care for other people. Um, I, as I learned more and more about um, the inequities in many outcomes 
um, experienced by people of color, it became clear to me. And I think, you know, I, I started saying this from very early on, there's really no, no, there's no reason why black women or indigenous women should die at three to four times the rate of white women during and immediately after pregnancy. There's no, there's not an explanation for that, except that we as a society are treating people differently and that there's something about the experience of being black or brown in America that creates that inequity. And we have a responsibility to identify that, deconstruct it, um, and create an opportunity for health justice, for birthing justice. And I, um, I just feel really strongly about that from, and I think it it comes from a way back place that all people deserve opportunities to be their full selves. Um, you know, I was one of three daughters raised in a military household and my dad was a fighter pilot and he used to tell us like, you can do and be anything that you want. Um, and um, I, he was always incredibly supportive of us. I don't know that he would ever use the word feminist for himself, um, but incredibly like feminist in his actions and words. And um, I uh, think that we also learned that that same opportunity should be an expectation of everybody. I feel sometimes like with specifically with research too, um, there has to be some type of trust that's formed. And especially if you're working with uh, people of color or disenfranchised or marginalized communities, I feel like because there, if you go back and you look at different studies, different experiences, um, there is a distrust um, just from past experiences and how researchers in the medical field treated people of color. And so do you find that that's something you're coming up against or do you find that we need answers Yes, we're here to help. Or is it a little bit of both? What does that look like for you, Dr. DeBink? It's a little column A and a little column B, I would say. And it it goes exactly to what you're speaking to. I think, you know, these experiences that are passed down through families, through generations that, you know, sort of form our opinions and perspectives about, you know, the predominantly white healthcare system or the ways in which, you know, predominantly white research teams have treated communities of color and people of color over time. And, and frankly, that's not all like way in the, like way back in the long time past, you know, I mean, some of these mistreatments have occurred within one generation of knowledge, right? And uh, it's, I think it's very important for us in the research and healthcare workforce sectors to acknowledge that out loud, to understand where it comes from and to not, and to not treat it with judgment um, and dismissiveness. Um, I think you know, it was really hard for me during um, the COVID era to hear a lot of vaccine stories where they just led with community mistrust as a reason for non-vaccination without talking about studies that indicated that, in fact, many communities of color wanted access to the vaccines, but there were structural barriers that prevented them from getting access. Um, but, you know, just this kind of like, well, if they don't trust us, then we can't help them, right? It's like this dismissive approach to community mistrust as opposed to an opportunity to be in conversation, to be in relationship, to build rapport, to build trust, to break down the structural barriers um, that prevent access to the things people do want. That was Dr. Michelle DeBink speaking with Valine MC of KRCL in Salt Lake City. 
Dr. DeBink is the 2023 National Academy of Medicine's Obstetrics and Gynaecology Fellow. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico and Montana, including this one. Thanks to Carolyn Yanis at Aspen Public Radio, Emily Arnston at KZMU, Gavin McGough at KOTO and Valine MC at KRCL for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>